Father, we are thankful that you are so full of grace. And Lord, um, just like I pointed out earlier, that there is going to be some hardships, God. There's going to be a curveball that life gives us that we can't foresee or, or see uh, the meaning behind. Uh, but God, we know that you are sovereign over all things. Uh, so Father, I pray uh, that you ease us uh, from our worries, from our concerns. And, and Father, just give us a peace to know that your sovereignty uh, rules over all, God. That, that Lord, you are that uh, all uh, good things come together for those who love you. So, Jesus, I pray that uh, we really um, meditate on your, your word and your promises and know that, um, that, God, there are some times where we are tested in our faith. And, uh, Father, as we learn what it means to be on mission and to make disciples, Father, uh, God, the willingness to sacrifice and give our all, for the sake of your kingdom, Lord, I pray that uh, that weighs heavily on our heart this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So as we begin today and start to think about what it looks like to be on the mission field, let me um, get some participation first of all. Who here has just never had the chance to be on a mission trip? who's just never had an opportunity or just, you know, missed out on opportunities. Okay, a few, a few has never been. Okay. Well, raise your hand if you've been on maybe a weekend or a week trip, a week trip missionary. Okay. Very good. Has anyone been on anything longer? We'll say longer than a week. Any long-term missionaries that have been there? Okay. Bob, where did you go? And for how long? Oh. Okay, for how long? Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, let me just go and, and tell you that if you've never experienced a mission trip or if you've been on one, it can be just a transformative experience for your faith. And I know mission trips have always had a special place in my heart. Uh, because um, if it wasn't for a mission trip, I probably wouldn't be here uh, speaking with y'all. Um, it was really back all the way when I became a, a new Christian, my junior year of high school, I went on a spring break mission trip to Matamoros, Mexico. And, um, and I don't have really time to explain the whole story, but needless to say, it was just very transformative. And the people I met there and the needs that I saw just gave me just a heart for ministry, a heart for those in need. So I knew from that moment on I wanted to pursue ministry full-time in whatever capacity I could. Um, next, during college, I had another opportunity to finally lead a mission trip. So I was um, part of the Baptist Student Union uh, Student Council, and I was in charge of missions and outreach. And so we fundraised for a mission trip to go to New Orleans around the time of Hurricane Katrina. So this was back in 2006, 2007. I know many of you probably remember Katrina, uh, but has, did anyone actually see it live, been to New Orleans during the disaster? Uh, because it was just devastation like I've never seen in my whole life. It was, um, I, I, you know, I still have it burned in my memory. There was a, you know, Six Flags or so, some sort of theme park, and it was literally like half submerged in water. So you would see, it's just this apocalyptic vision of just, you know, one part of the roller coaster here, the other part's underwater, and it was just, 
uh, unbelievable. So it was either just the whole city was submerged in water and what was on land was just a complete disaster, just like a giant junkyard. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me even 20 years later if they're still uh, not fully recovered from it. So it's just glad to, to do the little that we did to help um, that community in need. Next, after I graduated uh, with my undergrad, I connected with uh, a guy named Felix Laura who did, who led a Hispanic ministry uh, doing an after school program for those in Atlanta, uh, helping with tutoring and, and mentoring. So I did that for a little while. And he invited me to be part of a spring break mission trip to the Dominican where he was from. And what was so unique about this mission trip, it wasn't a, a one-time week. Uh, it was a five-year commitment. So every uh, week or, or every spring break for the next five years, the same mission team would go down to the same village called Cativo, the small village. And we would have different projects there. And, and you can kind of see God work, you know, year after year of them growing in their faith. Um, a man named Orjino and his son Santos were uh, our first converts, and they eventually became leaders of that church in Cativo and um, you know we built them you know I think the third year we built them a little um, church building a little shelter where they can gather and so it was just exciting to see you know a, a completely unreached people group come from you know nothing to having a big church be kind of the big attraction to that village um, so the word is spreading out to other nearby villages um, Another unique thing about that trip was one of um, Felix's old students uh, who was just in college starting at Kennesaw State University uh, named Jenny Garcia joined that trip. And I, I always tell young people, you never know who you might meet on a mission trip. So <laughs> about, uh, I think, four years after we met on that mission trip, we started dating and then got married about six years after meeting on that mission trip. Uh, and still that, uh, that same team, we've really bonded and, and built a strong connection. So I really encourage you, you know, those, um, those people you share missionary experiences with, it's almost like a, a family, like a bonding experience. So uh, just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Lastly, uh, after Janie and I were married, uh, we were married in August 2017. And just a few months later, there was another big disaster, if you guys remember Hurricane Harvey. So during Hurricane Harvey, uh, the whole you know, south um, near the Gulf of Mexico got torn up, especially around the Houston area near Texas. And so our uh, church, our Hispanic church, had a small team go there for a weekend. And uh, we, were, uh, we touched base with a church called First Baptist Church Vider and led by a guy named Pastor Terry, who was uh, both big physically and a uh, big personality and just had a giant heart um, with a very ambitious vision for spreading ministry and making opportunity um, when things seemed, you know, unrealistic, you know, we're in the midst of a disaster, but he wanted to expand. He found, you know, all these um, Hispanic workers, you know, uh, flowing in throughout uh, the region. So I was like, man, how can we reach the gospel with these, these folks? And so after that weekend trip, we got in touch and just, you know, had a lot in common as far as spreading the gospel. And, you know, Jenny and I had a, a lot of experience helping with Hispanic ministry. So he's like, hey, do you want to you start something here? And, and so we were wondering, like, yeah, like, let's, let's do it. And 
But the problem was, how are we going to fundraise? You know, we'd have to, you know, fundraise somehow or, or have a sustainable income. And the church didn't have any employment positions. So what they did was Pastor Terry found, uh, he helped founded a disaster relief ministry called Nehemiah's Vision, uh, the same Nehemiah's Vision that's um, signed up out there. And... Um, and through that entity, we were able to have a, a stable job. So Jenny was a caseworker helping with applicants and intake forms um, for victims. And then I was a position called the director of family services, but really it was just like a chaplain position. So I was able to go above and beyond just home repair and see if they needed anything else, if they needed connections through the food bank or Red Cross. Uh, we ended up doing all kinds of odd jobs. You know, we helped some folks with taxes. We helped with, um, you know, a, a, a family that only spoke Spanish, how to apply for government assistance. And so we did kind of whatever they needed. We would try to find a solution or hand off a solution to somebody else. But, um, but what I want to do is I have some pictures for you. So uh, if, if Bob wants to help me go through this slideshow, I just want to kind of illustrate a few things that we did. So one of those odd jobs was giving appliances. So we would have this church that donated their office to us. So Jenny and I would go there every day, and we'd be getting all kinds of donations coming in, like appliances, or if you go to the next slide, we'll have chairs, just anything that we can get, and gave it to our clients that were in need. So as long as they had a truck or a big vehicle and we could fit it in, we'd make it work. Uh, so we were able to do that. So if you keep going... Yeah, so that was our office. Um, that was my nice little uniform that I wore every day. And uh, if you go to the next slide, uh, we also ran a Bible study. So in our office, we had a nice little, uh, kind of like a prayer room, just a, a, a nice, uh, cozy uh, guest room. And what we would do is we would leave a, a Bible study there. We would uh, have uh, different clients come together and share their experience, share their resources, uh, connect with one another to go and pray for one another. Uh, and if you keep going, I think, yeah, there's our group. Um, we would go through the book of Job and just talk about how we can overcome grief and loss. Um, so I've, you know, missed that group of, of folks. Uh, next, if we go to the next slide, there's, there's two stories that I want to share really quick. Uh, so Pastor Terry, this is his gym, and one of the universities was completely renovating their dorm, so they got just this, you know, a few 18-wheelers and drove all of their old dorm stuff into his gym. So we have just this old, you know, drawers and, and wardrobes and bed frames and, and all kinds of things. And um, Pastor Terry's like, all right, you know, here you go, Chris, get rid of it. I want a gym back, you know, in this amount of time. So I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, we kind of posted on, on Facebook. We try to say, hey, if anyone is in need of something, just bring a truck and we'll be able to deliver, or, you know, you can pick it up and uh, whatever you would need. And, you know, a few families would come by here and there, but we're talking like hundreds of furniture. So this is like a whole building full of, of um of furnishings, and so um, one um, ministry caught our Facebook post called the Dream Center of Southeast Texas, and this was just a wonderful ministry. 
they had the opportunity to have uh, for their campus literally like a prison, like a, an actual abandoned uh, juvenile detention center and transform it into a rehabilitation center for uh, men who are homeless or have struggled with alcohol abuse or drug abuse. Um, if they wanted to go and um, you know, if, if they pleaded guilty to a crime, you know, instead of being incarcerated, they can go to this ministry. And what they did was, was share the gospel. You would have mentors for them. They would get um, training on this campus, so welding or construction. So they would uh, leave with a job and, and stability, you know, how to manage finances. And so we were like, yeah, okay, this is perfect because they're just looking for furniture and they were about to buy, you know, furnishings for their uh, living spaces. But, you know, it, God just connected us and, you know, that's, that's kind of their team and this is us, you know, filling their dorms and that's what the prison uh, um, living spaces looked like. So we were able to use, you know, 20 plus of these um, supplies to get them beds, to get them uh, wardrobes and have everything taken care of. So uh, that was just a big blessing for them. It was one less expense that they needed to worry about, and um, it helped Pastor Terry not worry about you know having his gym back or not. So that was a wonderful experience. The next story is this boy named Samuel. So uh, Samuel's family was still struggling with getting their life together. They were in the middle of construction, but. Um, Samuel, for like the last year or so, have been sleeping on the floor. Like her, the parents have gotten beds, his little siblings have gotten beds, but uh, Samuel was just kind of the last one to get furnishing in his room. Um, and we didn't have a bed available for him. But another one of our clients, the uh, the Rawls family behind Samuel, they were kind enough to be like, "Hey, we got this fold-up bed, you know, that's just kind of in our storage," and. Um, said, hey, there's a, a boy that would really appreciate that. And so we made the connection, and the Rawl family came over to Samuel's house. And this is a picture of them arriving and bringing him a bed to finally uh, sleep on something after a year of having nothing. And, um, and so if you want to go to the next slide, uh, Maria and Abel, her, uh, Samuel's parents, they invited us to, for dinner and, and prayer. And so we just had a, a great time of fellowship. And I think in the next slide, you'll see us kind of, um, you know, the amazing cooking that Maria did for us. And uh, it was just a great opportunity to have a, a gospel-centered conversation. And uh, at the end of that night, uh, Abel who is uh, Samuel's father, uh, grew up Catholic, but never really knew what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we had that opening of a conversation and was able to go and, and um, plant that seed. And so anyways, that was kind of the slideshow. But, uh, but what this really taught me when I was thinking about going and, and going on this long-term trip instead of having a week or two, uh, you know, kind of this high-by sort of trip, which is great uh, in some instances, but the great thing about being there long-term is that we were able to talk and get to know the folks and see them every day and interact and build that trust and relationship. And um, what that really led to is appreciation for discipleship, of really growing with them and growing in their faith, and not just be the person that you know proclaims the gospel, but be the one to water and to um, to not just plant that seed. 
And that's what I believe we see in Acts 14, when Paul is not just scattering seeds here and there and, you know, sticking things to the wall and hoping what sticks. What he's doing is he's actually going and watering seeds and then uh, encouraging, strengthening those who he uh, shared the gospel with, um, giving them leadership positions, getting them discipled um, to take leading roles. And I know for uh, many of us here, we might think of, um, you know, oh, I'm not really qualified for discipleship. You know, maybe you might be able to share a testimony or the gospel, um, but as far, or you might invite a friend or two, our family member to church, but then it's like, all right, you know, Dr. Timothy or, or Pastor Chris, you can take it from there. You know, we'll kind of, you know, it's our job to get the discipleship in. Uh, but really, you know, if you think about it, God has put people in your lives on purpose that only you can speak into. And if you remember what Jesus did when he chose his disciples, you know, what kind of disciples did he choose uh, to invest in for his core group? Did he choose the Pharisees? Did he choose the scribes or the theologians or, you know, the, the people that knew it all? Who did he choose? What he chose, like the fishermen, the homemaker, uh, the crippled, the lame, uh, those without any sort of knowledge, um, and was able to use the least of those among the community to go and share, spread his message, and become his disciples. So don't count yourself out. Don't disqualify yourself to say that, oh, I can't, you know, I don't have the qualifications. I didn't go to seminary. Uh, because there are certain people in your life that God has chosen you uh, to be not only that seed planter, but to water that seed. Uh, and to really invest in those who he, who he has put in your life. And so what I want to call, that, uh, a concept that I want to say that we're all called to is called missionary discipleship. So this concept that we are supposed to be always on the mission, always discipling. So it goes hand in hand. We're telling the message and we're reinforcing that message and helping young Christians grow and uh, flourish in their faith. And so three points that I want to have when we think of missionary discipleship and what it looks like, these are kind of the three foundations that I want us to focus on today. So the first one is that it's rooted in familiar love. It's rooted in familiar love. So in today's culture, you know, it's so common to see the church be this big social club where we come, you know, we all see, you know, oh, hey, you know, Sally, hey, Bob, you know, we kind of see each other, you know, once a week and then maybe get lunch with each other, but then we're, we go about our lives, you know, pretty normally. So our modern church can sometimes be seen as a social club, but when we remember the early church and, um, and Jesus himself, what happened with them, you know, were they were, you know, they, they grew and they expanded, but what also happened? It was very divisive, right? Uh, a lot of the early Christians, you know, their, their parents would be like, man, this is so kooky. Like, what are you doing following this, uh, this, you know, crazy rabbi? And so even, you know, Jesus's own family in Nazareth would, would not be too big of a fan until uh, after he died and was resurrected. And so we see Rejection. You know, we see for many of those early believers, who was their family? Who is it that all they had to rely on? And that was their brothers and sisters in Christ. And we similarly have that same role. Nothing's really changed since that early church model. And we need to be modeling that same sort of love for one another. 
Um, C.S. Lewis has a, a famous book called The Four Loves, and it goes through the four type of loves in uh, the Greek language. And one interesting one is called storge. And storge is a unique, powerful love because unlike romantic love or platonic friendships, it's nothing that you grow or you have to get to know someone to build up towards. It's just innate. It's just natural. It just comes as a second nature uh, to love another person. So if you think of a newborn, um, you know, a mother holding her newborn daughter, uh, does she need to be convinced? Does she really need to get to know this daughter before uh, they, she loves her or takes care of her? Of course not. Um, you know, speaking for myself, you know, when Tobias was first born, um, you know, if all I knew about him was how many dirty diapers I get or how many sleepless nights I get, you know, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't really like him that much on those terms, would I? But what happens? What happens? I, I still had a compulsion to love uh, this, this little child. And, uh, and not only that, but even the, the annoyances, even the small things made me love them even more. It, it became kind of a charming thing. And that's so important when we think of that brotherly, sisterly love. There might be things we don't like about each other. There might think, be things that gets on our nerves. And this is so true when we come to a new believer. You know, they are not going to be perfect. They're not going to have everything all together. But we can still give them that grace, give them that love. And... Um, and love them even the more for their faults and their sin because it's hard to remember, you know, we were just like them not that long ago, right, before we knew Christ. So it's good to have that empathy and to love in the same way Christ loves. Second point, so second um, foundation to mis being uh, missionary discipleship is that um, it's being able to share hard truths. So being able to share hard truths. So just like for our family, we have the love and trust enough to share things that are hard, uh, to admonish out of love, um, because we literally, we, you know, we, we really do care for them, right? We authentically care for them, and we love them too much for them to stay in their sin, to tell them not to turn and repent. And sometimes we need to do that. We need to have the boldness to say the hard truths that they need to hear in their life. Um, we need to be able to say inconvenient truths. And in fact, we see that in uh, Acts 14 uh, in verse 22. You know, Paul is fleeing from Lystria, you know, earlier um, and was almost stoned to death. He was persecuted in, in Iconium, all these places, all these Greek cities around Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Uh, we see that he's being kicked out, he's driven out, and especially in Lystria, he's, you know, within an inch of his life uh, being stoned. And yet, after he's done uh, making the rounds, he comes back to those places he was just almost killed in. And so he goes back to the disciples, and what are they thinking? It's just like, oh, my, what are you doing here? You know, what, you know, why would you come back? Uh, you were almost killed. Um, but what's the first thing uh, that, that Paul says when you look at verse 22 uh, in chapter 14, that it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven? So he wasn't sugarcoating the gospel message. He wasn't offering cheap grace because there is a cost to following Jesus. And so if you wanted to be an elder, if you wanted to take uh, the torch of Paul, uh, get ready to be bloodied, to be beaten, 
and to even make the ultimate sacrifice of your physical life in order to spread his message. Today, we are so um, just surrounded by modern churches today that either water down the gospel message or even give a false gospel that Jesus will somehow transform your whole life and make all your worldly problems go away. Uh, it'll be a, a source, just a fountain of health and wealth. But when you see the gospel, when you actually read the Bible, is that the message you get? Do you see uh, Jesus' disciples getting the best life? You know, it's Paul, you know, what did Paul get out of following Jesus other than getting kicked out everywhere, uh, about being, you know, in jail or uh, stoned in some way? or being beaten, uh, that's what he signed up for. And that's not, that's not too great. So we hear so many, you know, he, and Paul emphasizes that, that hardship isn't just uh, a byproduct, but it is a necessity, a part of entering the kingdom of heaven. And in today's generation, the message has been so commercialized, you know, marketed to the masses, and you'll have churches, you know, have all kinds of gimmicks and, you know, you know, skip all the repentance, skip all the uh, coming to Jesus, all the sacrifice, and what does it do? It just goes into uh, the family fun nights and, um, you know, the yoga classes or whatever, you know, churches might be offering. And that's not to say that there's no value in going and reaching unbelievers where they're at, um, you know, through social media or barbecues or events or things like that. But what we don't want to be in danger of is turning our church into an amusement park for the lost, uh, which I feel is so, uh, so the case today. And when we get away from that core message of sacrifice, of what Jesus did for us, um, you know, we, that is just so alien uh, to Jesus' gospel. What these churches are selling is what um, German theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer defines cheap grace as a preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Absolution without personal confession, grace without discipleship, without the cross, without Jesus Christ. And doesn't that just sound like he's speaking about our world today and what has really consumed uh, the modern church? But on the other hand, uh, Bonhoeffer defines costly grace as a treasure that is hidden in the field, and for the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has for it. A grace that is so uh, unrecognizable to our self-focused culture that we've lost sight of sacrifice, the cost, and not only that, but the, the being happy in that, being gladly to lay down our fleshly desire, our selfishness, our own dreams and aspirations, to follow Jesus for all that he's done for us. So if you're looking for a better way to get prosperous or uh, a way to be a better you, Jesus' gospel might not be for you. Because nothing but costly grace is required that the Son of God is humiliated and crucified on a cross for 
only in costly grace. Lastly, um, the third um, part of missionary discipleship is an essential part of the Christian lifestyle. So it is an essential part of the Christian lifestyle. When it comes to both mission work and discipleship, uh, we don't just see one or two verses that um, favor it. We don't see, um, you know, just a cherry pick a few verses here and there. What do we see throughout the Bible? What is it? It's a lifestyle. It's what the disciples do when they wake up in the morning to when they go to bed. Um, when we see them, they're, they're still working. They're still, you know, many of them have a family. But at the same time, all of their life has been uprooted. All that they are doing is invested in God's kingdom. You know, when you think of Jesus when he turned uh, 30 and um, shot off his ministry in Galilee, or when Paul was uh, entering Damascus and saw Jesus on the road, from that point on, nothing was the same. Similarly, when we come to Jesus and we see our old life, it should be unrecognizable what we are doing each and every day. And if your entire life hasn't been uprooted in some way after encountering Jesus, uh, we should be questioning that. Um, so uh, a verse that really comes to mind when I'm thinking about this is a famous verse from Matthew 8.20, where Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but there is nowhere the Son of Man can rest his head, or in other words, call home. So we see the disciples and Paul just really live uh, nomadically uh, throughout the region of Judea and then Paul later on into uh, the Gentile colonies. And hundreds of people flocked to their cause. So they were, you know, they were able to work, they were able to sustain themselves, but at the same time, you know, it wasn't just during their lunch break that they were able to tell someone about the gospel or to make a phone call to disciple someone. It was just something natural, it just came um, as part of knowing Christ. And that's what I'm hoping, that we have that same drive that comes naturally to us. In addition to a message of hope found in Jesus, it also went hand in hand with meeting tangible needs of the community, such as healing the sick or driving out demons and befriending those who were receptive to the gospel message. So these were not shallow, high-bye sort of things, you know, have a great life after I tell you the gospel. Those who received the message weren't just targets to be converted, that we can come back to church and brag about how many people came to know Christ. Uh, they were human beings, just like us, who are lost in their sin. And God has called us to help them uh, you know, have the opportunity to follow Jesus, just like we've been following Jesus. We can give them pointers, we can give them a hand, we can give them a guide. Um, with the help of the Holy Spirit to lead them to a better place in their walk with Christ and give them a sense of community that they don't have to do this on their own. They don't just need to hear the gospel and, oh, you know, good luck, never see you again. Uh, but they need that guidance to show and that model to see what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ. So as we think about our own behavior, our own um, priorities in life, you know, do, do other people see us as, you know, following Christ in everything that we're doing? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. Are we doing everything to model Christ? And are we also building trust? Are we building that storge love in those who are sharing the gospel with? Are we seeing them like family? Are we loving them? Or are we um, getting around to 
talking with them when we can. So it's a question to ask for ourselves. And so as we close out uh, today's message and sing a final hymn talking about spreading uh, the gospel message from the east to the west, north and south, and everywhere in between, that we go out and find our purpose as missionary disciple makers, going out to the world, going and spreading God's message, um, and finding tangible ways, finding opportunities where the Holy Spirit is just pressing on you to say, hey, go to that person. Maybe it's a family member who you've known uh, doesn't go to church, is very cold to the Lord, um, and you don't want to beat a dead horse uh, and keep mentioning it. But maybe you can say, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you. Um, you know, Jesus loves you. Jesus has a plan for your life. And just encouraging them. So as we think about those in our lives, those who God has given us, go and talk to them. I know for me, uh, the devil gives me no bigger temptation uh, than to rely on my comfort zone more than I rely on Jesus. And I always find security and comfort in just going in everyday life, just going through my routines. As long as I'm, you know, putting my head down and, and paying the bills and doing work and, you know, maybe I'll get worldly approval. Uh, but Christ knows uh, the people he's put in my life to go out of my way, uh, just like Jesus did, to heal and to love and to share the message of his kingdom. So uh, let us... Um, um, stand for this hymn and uh, if there is anyone who uh, has a calling, maybe you feel that I am ready to make that ultimate sacrifice, uh, to give my life to Christ, or man I want to just be on mission for the Lord uh, please come uh, talk with me and, uh, and we'll, we'll make something happen so please uh, join us in this final hymn